A number of weeks ago, we talked about on Palm Sunday that worship is happening. We then saw on Monday the lamb is selected. Last week, we focused on Tuesday that the kingdom is at hand, and now we are focused on the events of Wednesday within the Passion Week. Now, this day is filled with some of the most dramatic and thought-provoking events that we have studied so far. Jesus answers critics. He challenged the crowd. He also spoke of signs that would signal his return. And there is so much that is happening on this one day of the Passion Week that we're actually needing to break it down over two Sundays, this Sunday as well as next Sunday. But to get us started in this, I'm going to give you the theme for Wednesday. Here's your theme. Wednesday is all about the fact the king is coming back. I don't know if you picked up on that theme when the music right there, but the king is coming back. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles, Mark's Gospel, chapter number 11. Mark chapter 11. Now remember, I'm primarily working out of Mark chapter 11, 12, 13. We're following the progression in Mark, unless there is a section that is inserted by one of the other gospel writers. So we're going to begin in Mark 11, roundabout, say, verse number 20. But before we get into that, let's have a word of prayer. Here it is. Father, we need you once again to allow your spirit to guide us into truth. May my words come out clearly. May the connections of your word be made by your spirit. And Lord, may we walk away with a fresh awareness, a, a new excitement and anticipation for what it is that we are learning and how it all points back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is Wednesday, the 12th of Nisan. Mark chapter 11, verse 20, it tells us that Jesus and his disciples are on their way back to Jerusalem so that he could step into the temple and he could once again teach. Now, I need to just kind of pause there for a moment to say Jesus was a teacher like no other teacher. People loved to hear him teach. In fact, over in chapter 12, verse 37, it tells us that large crowds enjoyed listening to him. They didn't just endure it, they enjoyed it. He, he taught with authority. He, he taught things that caused people to think. He challenged conventional wisdom of the day. And at the same time, he shared a heart, a focus, an emphasis on God that caused people to stop and to really consider the teachings of who God really is. People loved to hear him teach. So on the way to the temple, the disciples saw the fig tree that Jesus cursed the day before and is now withered and it's dead. And Peter says, Rabbi, look at the tree that you cursed. It's dead. And Jesus' response in chapter 11, verse 22, seems out of place. He says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. The reason I say that seems out of place is because death and faith are not usually associated terms. Life and faith, blessing and faith, goodness and faith. Those are terms that seem to go together, but that is not the correlation that Jesus is making. When Jesus cursed the fig tree the day before, there was an implication that was coming to the people of Israel as a nation, and the implication was judgment is coming to Israel. But now when Peter sees the tree withered and dead, 
Instead of Jesus focusing maybe on a political idea or a nationalistic idea or a judgment-oriented idea, instead he tells his disciples, have faith in God. Now there is a hermeneutical principle, uh, an interpretational principle that I try to share as much as I can. That is, there is one interpretation of scripture, but there can be many applications of scripture. One interpretation, many applications. So in this story, the cursing of the fig tree, here's the interpretation. Jesus sees a fig tree, he's hungry, he goes looking for food, there is no food, he curses it, it dies, bam. That is your interpretation of that text. It's very simple. But there's a lot of applications for that. For example, there is a national application, a judgment application for the nation of Israel. There's a faith-based application for Jesus' disciples. There's even a creative application for all of us. Think of it like this. John 1 and Colossians 1 both identify Jesus as creator. It says nothing was created apart from him and in him and through him. It's for him. He's creator. So the creator has the right to do with his creation whatever he sees fits. If he decides to create and to curse and die, that is his prerogative as the creator. It is this applicational quality of scripture is one of the reasons the word of God is living and active in each of our lives. So the faith application was necessary for the disciples based upon the week they were walking through. It is going to be the most difficult week of their life. Jesus is going to be tried. He'll be condemned. He'll be crucified. He's going to die. For three and a half years, their lives have centered around Jesus and his ministry. And all of that is about to radically change, and it's about to seemingly come to an end. They needed to have faith in God. So when the disciples saw the symbol of Israel, the fig tree, when they saw the symbol of Israel dead, here's what Jesus said. When you see it, have faith in God. Why? Because in a couple of days, you're going to see the Savior of Israel dead. And you also need to have faith in God. So when they arrive at the temple, there's now two exchanges between Jesus and the religious crowds. The religious crowd comes through and they test Jesus, and then Jesus challenged the religious crowd. Let's start with the first of those. That is, the religious crowd tested Jesus. Here's where they began. They tested his loyalty to Caesar. Now, once again, all of the references are right there in your notes. I've got them up on the screens as well. But I want us to primarily focus right now for just a moment on this idea coming out of Mark chapter 12. So you got two groups that are now coming together. You got the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they are joining forces with a little flattery and some trickery. And they're coming together, and they say in verse number 14, teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. You are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Now we know they're up to something because the Pharisees hated Jesus' teachings and the Herodians are loyal to the government. So they come and they ask their question. Here's their question. They, they shoot their shot. They say, Jesus, is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar? Now the poll tax was one of three taxes the Jewish people were to pay back to Rome. There was a ground tax that was one-tenth of the grain. It was also one-fifth of the wine and the fruit that was produced. Then there was an income tax. It was 1% of a person's income. And then there is the poll tax, 
which would be the equivalent of about 16 cents a year. So it wasn't a very big tax. But the Jewish people did not like it because of how big it was. They hated it because of what it actually represented. That is, they were basically paying Rome to live in the land that was already given to them as an inheritance from God. Rome conquered the territory and then taxed the people of God to live in the place that they were already living. And the people were outraged. They hated it. They hated what that tax represented. So if Jesus said, it is lawful to pay the poll tax, he further alienates the Jewish people. If he says it's not lawful to pay the poll tax, then he is now declaring himself to be a dissenter of Rome. So they think they have him cornered. And again, you don't corner the son of God. <laughs> it's not like he didn't know this question was coming. So he asked the question, he says, would you bring me a coin? They bring him a coin and then he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And the answer is it's Caesar's. Now for us, a coin's image represents a part of our past. The image of those on the coin comes from the past. For them, the image on the coin was a part of their present. Each Roman emperor minted new coins with their image on it when they came into power. And those coins showed their power, their authority, as well as their property. In other words, the coins showed who was in power at that time, it showed the reach of their authority because whoever accepted their coins also accepted their reign. And it also showed the property of Caesar. It's his image, it's his property. So by drawing attention to the likeness and the inscription that's on this coin, Jesus made an incredible point. Using Caesar's coins only recognized his current authority and power in their lives. It's his coin, it had his image, it's a part of his property. So to give Caesar the poll tax is simply to give back to Caesar what Caesar already owned. So here's how he said it, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Just as the coin had Caesar's image which showed his ownership. Humanity bears God's image, showing his ownership. We were created in the image of God, Genesis 1:27. So the implication is give the coins to Caesar, but your life belongs to God. The crowds were stunned with his response. So now there's another group that comes. And this time they tested his loyalty to Moses and his understanding of the afterlife. The group that comes and asks the question is the Sadducees. Now, all of these groups, they were a little peculiar, but the Sadducees were probably the strangest group of the bunch, at least to me. So you need to know something about the group in order to understand their question. Uh, this is a group that they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul. They rejected the existence of angels, but they really enjoyed intricate arguments that nobody else cared about. They were a strange group. They were a small group, but they made up for their small size in power as well as in wealth. So their question was an exaggerated spin on Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. In that text, Mosaic law states that when a brother dies without having a son, 
the wife of the deceased will marry another one of his brothers in the same family so that the first husband will one day have a descendant. So the Sadducees, they bring this up and they're like, there's seven brothers. They all marry the same woman. They all die before a child's born. I'm thinking if I'm around like brother number three, I'm probably not going to marry that woman. Like it's, it's not been good in the family so far. But anyway, you got to remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the immortality of the soul, but they like arguments that nobody cares about. So they have their little argument and they're going to try to come in and through showing the absurdity of the resurrection, they want to stymie this unsophisticated carpenter out of Galilee. So Jesus says in verse 24, you're mistaken. He says, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. And in this, he tells them that there's no marriage in heaven as we would define marriage. In fact, he says, we are like the angels in that regard, not marrying or in giving in marriage. But then he goes back and he references God telling Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God spoke in the present tense, I am their God. Implication is they are still living. So if God is presently their God, it implies they're still alive. Jesus was right when he says, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. Once again, it says the crowds are stunned. So then there's another test. They tested his loyalty to the Old Testament law. Now, this test is given by a scribe. The scribes were considered to be experts in the law. The scribe asked the question, what's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then from that, he gives two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the scribe affirmed exactly what Jesus said, and then he added that these things are much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, chapter 12, verse 33. In other words, if someone could just do those things, love God like that and love people like that, they would fulfill all the sacrifices, all the laws, all the practices put together. So after this, not only was the scribe impressed with Jesus's answer, but Jesus was impressed with the scribe's answer. He says in the text, chapter 12, verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After this exchange, it says no one would ask him a question. I understand. When each group comes and he wisely answers, the next group is a little bit more tentative to come. So at this point, Q&A is done. The religious crowd has tested Jesus. They have questioned Jesus. They have also tried to trick Jesus. But instead of revealing his flaws, they have further displayed his glory. So now let's go to the other side. Jesus comes on the offensive. Jesus challenged the religious crowd. Now, to get the beauty of this exchange, I need to share a theory of mine. You might agree with my theory. You might not like my theory, but I'm going to share my theory with you. Here's my theory. People get mad when they're criticized about something they think they're really good at. For example, if you want to make a fashion model mad, tell her her outfit is out of style. 
If you want to get an NFL quarterback upset with you, offer some pointers on how to throw a correct spiral. If you want to get a English teacher upset, correct his or her grammar in front of other people. Okay, those types of things upset people. So how do you get religious people mad? Tell them their beliefs are flawed, their practices are wrong, their devotion is lacking, and then you do that in front of everybody. It'll tick off the religious crowd every time. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So Jesus challenged their beliefs. He asked, how is it that the scribes say, Messiah is the son of David, when David called him Lord? Lord is a title of respect that was given primarily to an elder. So he's basically saying, how can Messiah be both David's elder and David's descendant? Or maybe a deeper question would be, how can anyone pre-exist their birth? They can't unless they're God and Messiah is God. So he says, basically, you talk about Messiah like you know him but your beliefs are getting in the way of you actually knowing him. Your beliefs are flawed. Then he challenged their practices. We find over in Mark chapter 12, verse 38 and following, it says, beware the scribes because they walk around in religious clothes. They enjoy respectful greetings in the market. They take the best seats in the synagogues. They like places of honor at banquets and they offer long prayers in public. Now that doesn't sound like that bad of a list. Maybe annoying, definitely prideful, but that doesn't sound too bad. Until Jesus says, and they devour widows' houses. Verse number 40. The same people looking spiritual are the same ones acting sinful. Practices do not make you godly, especially if your practices are based on greed and pride. He says, your practices are wrong. Then Jesus challenged their devotion. He, he calls the disciples over and he said, I've been watching as people have been putting money in the treasury and this poor widow has given more. She's more devoted than all of them. And he explains why. He says, she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything out of her poverty and they gave a portion out of their surplus. The test of devotion is not how much did you give. The test is how much did you keep? He's saying, your devotion is lacking. And then he goes after the Pharisees and rebukes them in front of everyone. This is actually over in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 36. 36 verses of rebuke coming for the Pharisees. In this section, he exposed the religious hypocrisy of this group. He says, you've tied burdens on others that you yourself are unwilling to bear. You want honor, and yet you refuse to serve. They knew the law of God, but they became a hindrance to the kingdom of God. They stressed the details of the law, but they neglected the heart of the law itself. He's saying all of this in front of the entire crowd. Now, it is not uncommon for people to read some of the stories of Jesus, to listen to some of the teachings of Jesus, to come to church and they hear about the wonderful things that Jesus has done and what he taught and what he said, the miracles he performed, and they might say, I don't know how anyone could crucify such an incredible man. I don't know why anyone would crucify someone who did so much good and taught so many great things. 
But if you really listen to what he was teaching that crowd, especially in this week, I'm surprised they waited till Friday to crucify him. He is intentionally coming after the sacred cows of every single group that's around him, intentionally calling them out, intentionally saying, this is wrong, this is wrong. You think you're right here, you're not right there. This is an issue, this is a fallacy, this is sin. He keeps calling them out. So at this point, Jesus then moves to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is only a few hundred yards away from the temple. And while walking to the Mount of Olives, one of his disciples mentioned the beauty of the stones and the beauty of the buildings that comprised the temple. This is found in Mark 13, verse number one. And it was beautiful. The temple was beautiful. The temple that Herod built was one of the wonders of the world. It was built on Mount Moriah. That's the same place that Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. Same place that Solomon had built his temple. Same place that David had purchased the threshing floor to make an offering to God. Same mountain range in which Jesus is crucified. The temple that Herod built was an engineering masterpiece. In fact, Josephus, first century Jewish historian, had this to say about the temple, quote, the outward face of the temple was likely to surprise men's minds and their eyes, for it was covered with plates of gold. At the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away. But this temple appeared to strangers at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to the parts of it that were not gilt or overlaid with gold, they were exceeding white. Of its stones, some were 45 cubics in length, five in height, and six in breadth. To give you an idea of what that is, that's around 67 feet long, seven and a half feet high, nine feet thick. That's the size of these stones in the temple. The stones of the temple are massive. The temple is beautiful. And Jesus's response was not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, which occurred later, 70 AD. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by Rome. The date of destruction of the temple was the ninth of Av on the Hebrew calendar. In 586 BC, on the exact same day, is when the Babylonians burned Solomon's temple. Like two bookends describing the activity of God. You can see how God uses the temple at different places to tell his story. The conversation about the temple's destruction comes to an end, and Jesus continues to make his way to the Mount of Olives. Now, knowing that Jesus was speaking about a future event, his disciples pulled him aside privately to ask him more about the details. They asked, when will these things happen, and would there be any signs that would signal these things beginning? They're basically asking about the destruction of the temple and the sign of Jesus' coming or of the end of the age. That's what they're wondering about. They believed these events would happen simultaneously, and they also thought they would happen immediately. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. So right there on top of the Mount of Olives, 
with a beautiful temple as a backdrop. Jesus answered their questions by delivering one of his most famous messages. It's called the Olivet Discourse. So Jesus shared six signs that will signal his return. We get to three of these today. We get through the next three this next week. So what is the first sign that will signal his return? False Christ will mislead the masses. False Christ will mislead the masses. Notice this is primarily coming out of Matthew 24. Jesus tells the group, many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. False messiahs are not new. There were people who claimed to be Messiah before Jesus was born, and there's been a lot who have claimed to be Messiah after Jesus was born. The new twist in this is the reach and the impact that these false messiahs now have. 200, 300, 500 years ago, their impact, their following would be small, isolated to a localized group of people. But now because of inventions like TV and radio and internet and air travel and social media, now we find that the lies spread quicker and the crowds get bigger and the impact is more easily seen. So Jesus says, many will come in my name saying I am he. And he says, and they will mislead many. Let me give you just a couple of names that you should probably at least be aware about as far as names within our generation that fit this. The first I would say would be a guy by the name of Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. He was one of those false Christ. He died in 2013. This former heroin addict led Growing in Grace Ministries out of Miami, Florida. He claimed over 2 million followers worldwide. More than 400 affiliated businesses supported him and his church by giving upwards of 80% of their profits back to this man and back to his church. In 1988, Miranda announced that he was the reincarnated Apostle Paul. In 1999, he changed his title to The Other, saying that he was the one paving the way for Jesus to come. In 2004, he pronounced himself to be Jesus Christ, and he said he is the sole interpreter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He claimed his mission was to close every single church so that the real church could begin. He proudly displayed a 666 tattoo. He claimed evil did not exist. He said antichrist was needed in order to rid the world of archaic views of Christ. And this man was not alone in those teachings. Other false messiahs of our generation would include people like Sun Myung Moon, the South Korean founder of the Unification Church, Wayne Bent of the Lord Our Righteousness Church, David Koresh of the Branch Davidians, Maria Christos of the Great White Brotherhood, Sergei Torop of the Church of the Last Testament, Imam al-Mahadi, who claimed to be Messiah both for Christians as well as for Muslims. And the list could go on and on. Here's the thing Jesus is saying. There's going to be more and more false messiahs who stand up. There's going to be more and more who will say, I am he. 
There's going to be more and more who are going to mislead many. And every time you hear those stories, every time you see people deceived, every time you see another false messiah, let it ring a bell in your mind, the king is coming back. The king is coming back. Every time the king is coming back. Here's the second piece that will signal his return. There will be worldwide conflict and increasing natural disasters. Jesus told the disciples in Mark chapter 13, verses 7 through 8, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. Now, let me stop right there. Anytime we get around a list like this and you begin to read through those things, people will begin to say, but those things have been going on forever. That is, we've always had war, we've always had famine, we've always had earthquakes, so those things seem like they could fit any time in any age. Yes, that is exactly it. That is a part of the point. That is a, a focus on the fact that these pieces, while they have been going on, it is to keep the body of Christ in a place where we are anticipating at any moment Jesus could return. But here's a key piece to help you understand this. The next phrase of Jesus is, these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. He compares the signs of his coming with labor pains. That is, when labor pains increase in frequency and intensity, the baby's about to be born. When these signs increase in frequency and intensity, it's close to Jesus' return. When you see those things happening and they get bigger and they get more frequent and they're bigger and they're more frequent and you just keep seeing them and they're more frequent, when that happens, let it signal something in your mind. The king is coming back. Number three, the church will suffer persecution and the effects of apostasy. Jesus warned his followers that persecution and abandonment are coming. And you can even tell in the scriptures itself that those things started almost immediately. Most of his disciples are martyred. The book of Acts tells story after story of persecution and problems coming to the early church. The apostle Paul was like the poster child of persecution. He was regularly undergoing problems and threats and, and eventually his death. Fox's book of martyrs shares many stories of people who have died as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. But remember, frequency and intensity. Did you know that there have been more people to die for their faith in Christ in the last 100 years than in the previous 1,900 years combined? It's happening more often. It's happening more frequently. It happens to more people. There are tens of millions of born-again believers every day who are suffering and many dying as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus told us it was going to happen. He told his followers, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be taken to court. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be brought before government officials. He said, don't worry about what to say when you stand in front of them. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. Pause. 
that text has been taken out of context more than you could imagine for unprepared pastors standing in a pulpit. For people saying, I'm just going to wait till I get there. I'm going to feel it out. That is not the context of that text. The context is when you are being persecuted because of your faith, when you're being persecuted because of living righteously before God, when you're being brought before those because you took a stand for righteousness, not because you chose not to prepare for the people of God. When that time comes, trust the Holy Spirit because he will tell you what to say in that moment. Always look back at the context. So he told us it was going to happen. He also goes on to say that brothers will betray their brothers to death. Fathers will betray their children to death. Kids will rise up against their parents and even have them put to death. He says, you're going to be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, Mark 13, 13. And then Matthew, in this same text, in the same idea, he inserts something that Mark does not share. Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 and 12. He says, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Falling away is not suggesting that a person can lose their salvation. If you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are being held in the sovereign hands of God. That is not what the text is saying. Here's what that means. You're going to find that those who have claimed to be a Christian, as persecution increases, they will be shown that they are not truly born again, and they will walk away from the church. Did you all know we just witnessed a major exodus when there came the pandemic with COVID? When you see people walking away, did you know that a lot of churches are still 25, 30% down from pre-COVID numbers because people who, here it is, they were culturally there because that was the acceptable thing to do. They weren't born again. They were culturally there, but now nothing in culture saying you need to be there. In fact, everything in culture saying you don't want to be there. So that group has now stepped out the door. You're seeing this moment by moment, day by day, continue to read stories. You'll find people deconstructing their faith. They're walking away from the church. They go away for different reasons, but Jesus said it's going to come. So one, there's going to be an exodus of those who say, I'm a Christian, but they're not born again. But watch this. There's also an increasing exodus of people who are more focused and excited about the things of the world than they are about the things of God. Did you know average church attendance right now is 1.8 times per month? That's considered to be regular church attendance for those who say I'm born again. 1.8 times a month. You all know I'm not going to sit here and beat people about church attendance. I, I feel like unless the Spirit of God does the work in you, if you're only coming because you feel guilted into it, something's wrong there. That's between you and the Lord. But I'm going to tell you, when you're born again, when God captures your heart, when you're experiencing gospel transformation, when you're concerned about your neighbors and your loved ones, 
when you feel like you just got beat to death in the world because they don't have your values, the values of the word of God, you look forward to getting together around God's people and worshiping him and focusing on him and finding strength for your day and encouragement for the travels. You're, you're wanting to do that. When everything else in the world is more exciting to us than God, that needs to be a check on our soul. When you see it happening, what should you remember? The king is coming back. Not only for those who do not know him, but for the believers. Are we living like the king is coming back? Are we praying like the king is coming back? Are you in the word like the king is coming back? Are you investing today like the king could come back any moment? Are you walking through life with a seriousness about your faith because you know the king is coming back? When you see him face to face, do you want to be able to say, I'm glad you're here? Or do you want to be in a place where you're saying, oh, if you would have just given me a week's warning so I could get my stuff right first. We need to be thinking the king is coming back. There has to be a seriousness to our faith. The disciples are asking, how do we know what's going to happen? He says, when you see these things happen, just know it's going to happen in frequency and intensity. The closer it gets to my return, the more you're going to see it and the more intense it's going to become. The final piece that he shared with them in that is that the gospel will be preached to the nations. Did you all know that in the last hundred years, through the invention of TV, radio, internet, and air travel, that peace has sped in rapid fashion. The gospel is being proclaimed around the world. You can go into a jungle in the middle of nowhere and somebody gonna pull out their smartphone and Google something in front of you. Like internet access is everywhere. The gospel is around the world. Now again, it's not that these things have not been happening at different degrees along the way, but just like labor pains, they will increase in frequency and intensity the closer we get to his return. The signs and the prophecies are happening all around us. With each prophecy that's fulfilled, with each difficult news story, we hear. With each situation where you hear of churches and believers turning their back on God and turning their back on the word, it should remind us the king is coming back. The king is coming back. So let me ask you, are you ready for the king to come back? Is your family, are your friends, are your neighbors, are your coworkers ready for the king to come back? Are you living like someone right now who's anticipating the king's arrival? What can we do prior to his return? Pray for the Holy Spirit to prepare the hearts of people to receive the gospel. Pray, pray, pray. Pray for opportunities to sow the seed of God's word and to share the gospel story. Live like someone who knows the king is coming I just went through this a moment ago, but invest now, give now, serve now, take that mission trip now, recognize the Lordship of Jesus in your life now, do that now. Be about the mission of God while there is time. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but the Bible says we are to work while there's still time. We're to labor while there's still day. 
Because next week when we get back, it's going to describe what happens when he returns. There's going to be three more of these prophecies we get into. And here's the final part. If you are not saved, if you don't know that you're saved, I cannot encourage you enough. Consider the claims of Jesus today. Repent now. The king is coming back. I'm going to ask you if you would, bow with me for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. We've gone through Sunday after Sunday for the last several weeks. We've gone through this redemptive story of God focused on events of the Passion Week. And all along the way, I'm trying to emphasize it's not just about the information happening in the day. There's a story. There's a redemptive story that the Bible tells us. That's why we began with that about four weeks ago. But in this redemptive story, for those who are not sure if they are a born-again believer, if you don't know without a doubt that you're saved, if you don't know without a doubt that if you were to close your eyes in death tonight, that you would open your eyes in glory. If you don't know that, but you want to know it, you desire to know it, you want to know that you're right, I want to share very clearly again, here's the redemptive story of God. Humanity was created for relationship with him. That's our purpose. You're not here by accident. You're not a fluke. You're here by design. Humanity created for a relationship with God. Our sins separated us from that relationship. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us there was nothing that we could do to reconcile that relationship ourselves. But Jesus did what we could not do. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead three days later that we might have eternal life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin, turn from their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. If today you desire to know that you're right with God, if there's if there is an intensity growing inside of you where you're thinking, he's talking to me, he's talking to me, there's something inside of you saying, now's your time, whatever that might be, I want to lead the very simple prayer. This is between you and God. It would simply be this, God, I know that I've sinned. I know my sin has separated me from you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe that Jesus rose again three days later. As best I know how, I turned from my sin by placing faith in what Jesus has done for me. Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you give me eternal life? If you've just prayed with me, let me just tell you, that moment, that turning from sin to a savior is the most important moment of your life. In a few moments, there's gonna be some pastors and pastors' wives at the front. There's going to be some of our, our counselors that'll be along the front. If today you've placed faith in Christ and you want to talk to someone, I cannot encourage you enough today to come talk to someone. Time is short. 
We, we need to be together within the body of Christ and others have been walking the journey before us. They can help, help us understand what that looks like. So in a moment, we're gonna have a final song of invitation. The altar is gonna be open. And I'm gonna encourage people, if you've placed faith in Jesus, not only today, but maybe it's in previous weeks, or maybe it was years ago in another church, but you've not been baptized, or you don't understand what the walk of a Christian is supposed to look like, whatever that might be for you, I encourage you today, live like the King is coming back. So we're gonna have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would move in hearts and minds God, would you, by your spirit, draw us into this close, intimate walk with you? And Lord, would you live your life in and through us? And Lord, may we remember that the King is coming back. In Jesus' name, amen.